Andrew Aranda was murdered on August 10th, 2018, and this is his mother and sister's story. On this episode, I will be speaking with Andrew's mother, Dorothy, and his sister, Sierra. Hello? Hi, it's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hi, Kelly. This is Dorothy. Hi, Dorothy. How are you? here as well. Hi, Sierra. Hi. Nice to have you both on the podcast today. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Phoenix is the capital of Arizona and is in the northeastern reaches of the Sonoran Desert. With its hot desert climate, it is often too hot to even be outside to have a barbecue in the summer. Despite the heat, its canal system led to a thriving farming community. Cotton, cattle, citrus, climate, and copper were known locally as the five C's, being the force behind Phoenix's economy. Well after World War II, high-tech companies began to move into the valley and air conditioning made Phoenix's hot summers more bearable. The most notable attraction is of course the famed Grand Canyon. Andrew was the fourth child born to his loving mother Dorothy, followed only 11 minutes later by his twin sister Sierra. Andrew already had three older brothers who welcomed him happily into their loving family. Being 11 minutes older than Sierra, Andrew still always acted like the older brother. The baby of the family was born only 18 months after Andrew and Sierra. Doing almost everything together, the three younger children always felt like they were triplets. These three musketeers played together all day long when not in school, having most of their fun outside. And they were also very involved in sports and scouts, seeming to have something on the go most weeknights. They were a busy, happy, fun-loving, noisy household. This single mom somehow made it all work, and they are a family that truly love each other. Dorothy, what was Andrew like as a child? It was um, interesting because they were very, very close, and they kind of had opposite personalities. Andrew was a mama's boy and a cuddler and did not like wild, hyperactivity. He was just more, um, I don't want to say calm because he was actually hyperactive later in his childhood, but he was just a cuddler and not into big, exciting kind of play that you would sometimes expect from a boy, whereas Sierra absolutely loved wild, crazy play. Like her dad used to throw her up in the air and she loved it. And if he threw Andrew up in the air, he'd start crying immediately and ask for me. And like they would, you would think they would go on the tire swing or the playground together. 
but I they couldn't even sit on the same tire swing because Sierra would be like, higher, 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 and Andrew would be like, ah! <laughs> So they were very opposite in terms of their personalities and kind of like a role reversal if you are thinking stereotypical gender roles, which we try not to do in our family, but it, it was interesting to watch them. And then as they got older, of course, their personalities, you know, adjusted a little bit. And Sierra's always liked high adventure, though. She's very high energy and high, like she's a risk taker. Like she's the one that's going to go bungee jumping and, you know, out of a hot air balloon and sky gliding and stuff. And uh, Andrew is not, was not ever interested in that kind of stuff. So even going to the fair and stuff, and the you know like Disneyland and stuff it was very obvious who liked the wild side and who was a little bit more reserved in terms of that part of it Andrew was hyper though like he was very very energetic as a young boy so he ran around the house a lot but he didn't like the wild adventurous kind of risk-taking behavior that she did Sierra tell me you haven't jumped out of a plane please (laughs) <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Sierra, tell me about a story that you'd like to share about how you and your brother like to do things together. Well, one of my favorite stories to tell, I think it was uh, his last Christmas with us. We went to Target. I think it was either Christmas Eve or the day before. And we went to Target for some last minute Christmas shopping. And um, we like what what's interesting. So we were 22 when he passed away. Um and as adults, we were very uh, mature and independent at our jobs and everything like that in school. But whenever we got together, we became very immature and <laughs> would just be silly together and everything. So when we were at Target, we were going through the, the kids' aisle, all the toys, and <laughs> just acting like five-year-olds again. And so, like, he picked up a noodle and started whacking me and my little brother on the head with it. And then I was running away through the aisles. <laughs> Luckily, it was empty because it was Christmas Eve and it was, like, 10 p.m. <laughs> and then he grabbed a hula hoop from one end of the aisle as I was walking past the other end of the aisle. And he rolled the hula hoop down the aisle and pegged me in the legs with it, which I still don't even know how he could do that. Um, but, like, <laughs> just silly. Like, we were probably they were probably thinking what is wrong with these people because we were 20 we would have been 22 acting like five-year-olds in the toy aisle at target oh uh, <laughs> that's kind of like what our like when we were together we were just like the silliest like we were always the silliest when we were together um like out of anybody else that we were with andrew had some struggles in school his siblings all breezed through school with very little effort Andrew was also very intelligent. However, in hindsight, his mom realizes he likely had a learning disability. He was gifted in math and language arts. But in the younger grades, when his twin sister and younger brother were learning to read and write with such ease, it affected him. In middle school, he had new struggles, being gay and struggling with being different from what the world expects. Andrew had a few little crushes in high school, but then he met someone that he fell absolutely madly in love with. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the relationship between Andrew and his husband and how they met and just what you feel comfortable talking about. His name was Jake. His name is actually Yakub. He's Middle Eastern, but he went by Jake, so we know him as Jake. They met online through a mutual friend, and the thing that struck me the most was how quickly 
they spent like every minute of every day together. Um, and if they weren't physically together, they were on the phone together or they were texting each other. It became fairly, I don't know how to describe it, intense. Jake was obsessed with Andrew pretty quickly. Andrew, um, we didn't really talk much about what he's like as an adult, but he has this or had this magnetic personality and energy about him. Like I never met anybody who didn't like him and love him. Uh, he just had this, I don't know, it's this magneticness about him. Very high energy, but very positive and very upbeat and very bouncy and just, you know, go, go, go and high energy and loved music and dancing and just uh, really, really fun to be around. So I think it was easy for me to see why somebody would become obsessed with him. There were many issues within the family with the person Andrew chose. They tried hard to like him, but he was so unlike Andrew. Yeah, I mean, their personalities were very, very different. It was very confusing for us because Andrew was the kindest, sweetest, most generous and compassionate, caring person you you could think of. And Jake was like the polar opposite. He was very mean to waiters and waitresses. When we went out to eat, he was just rude and obnoxious to everybody and just, you know, judgmental and, you know, said mean things even about Andrew's family members and friends. And so I, I, I'm a, I, a lot of times I told Andy, like, he's mean. He's a horrible person. He's not, you know, he, he hated me because of my relationship with Andrew, because of how close Andrew and I were. And so he, we had uh, what we called twin time. So like, we, it would just be me and Andrew and we'd, you know, go hang out or go talk or whatever. So whenever we did that, Jake would just, he hated it. So he would get mad at me and he'd try, you know, I think he tried to keep me and Andrew away from each other and stuff because he wanted to be the most important person in Andrew's life, even though Andy had a best friend and his twin sister and, you know, my mom and all that stuff. So, so yeah, Jake and I never really got along. What was interesting, what, what ended up happening is that I, I never liked him, but I tried to make it work for Andrew. So I would, I would, you know, we'd have family game night and I would hang out and, and laugh with him and talk to him and stuff like that. But deep down, just know that he wasn't somebody I could trust or really fully connect with. So I just knew that and kept my distance emotionally, but you know, I could interact with him on a, on a decent level. But I do remember uh, exactly one week before he killed my brother. Um, we were actually driving to a restaurant together and it was just me and Jake in the car and he apologized to me about how our relationship was and I apologized to him and I said, you know, and we kind of had a plan of like, let's, you know, let's be better to each other and let's make this work and get along better. So it was, it was very strange that we had that conversation. I felt, I felt much more betrayed by him after having that conversation and then a week later he killed Andrew than if I had never had that conversation with him. It was a whirlwind romance. And before the family knew it, Andrew and his love were married. They got married without telling their families. And this was such a departure from the closeness of Andrew's family that they were absolutely shocked. Sierra, how how did you feel when you heard that your brother had gone ahead and gotten married without telling anyone? Well, so for me, I was pretty upset about it because mostly because I had come over to my mom's house 
that night or that evening after work after, when they were getting married they were leaving right as I pulled in to visit my mom and I and I saw Andrew and Jake and um, Andrew's best friend and I was like oh where are you guys going and um, and they lied to me and said they were going out to celebrate somebody's birthday um, so right so at first I was like oh okay cool have fun see you guys later um, but then so when I found out the next day that they had actually gone and gotten married I was really upset that I had been lied to. This is my twin brother, and I was supposed to be at his wedding. And none of us were, like, mad at him, like, thought he was a horrible person. We just were upset because we were sad because we would have wanted to be a part of his big day. And probably we were both also, we were also, like, nervous because we were like, oh, I honestly didn't think this was going to be a long-term relationship. I thought it was going to be a short relationship. So when they got married, it kind of, you know, I was like, well, I guess, you know, this is more than I thought it was going to be. So I think once they did get married, we ended up having to change our mindset mindset on it and um, try to work a little bit harder at having a, a better relationship with Jake or just kind of tolerating him a little bit more. After struggling to varying degrees through his younger years, Andrew then found his stride when he found his first job and worked and studied. Seeing how he thrived in his job, and with his promotions, he saw that he was a competent, wonderful young man with so much potential. What his family had always seen and knew. But getting the validation from others matters. It was very nice to see that for those two to three years before he met Jake. Um, so I think seeing him become who he was going to be and... Um, sorry. Seeing him just mature and grow into this amazing human being and knowing what he wanted to do with his life. And then at the same time, being this free, fun spirit. He um, loves to sing and loves to dance. And so definitely one of my favorite, favorite memories is driving in the car with him where he would just blast music. He loved loud, wild music like, uh, just like anthem type, like Cher and, Katy Perry and um, Beyonce and Keisha, no, Kesha, Kesha, people like that. And he would like grab a water bottle or a hairbrush or whatever and pretend like it was his microphone and he would just sing at the top of his lungs. Then Andrew became a man who graduated from high school despite his struggles. A man who went on to college and was planning on being a social worker. A man who recognized that he was in an abusive marriage and had the strength to not only recognize it, but act on it and tell his husband he wanted a divorce. He was a man whose husband, in an attempt to hold on to Andrew forever, murdered him in an absolutely heinous way. This is the story of Andrew Aranda's murder. Dorothy was at work. She had a busy day as schools were getting organized for the upcoming new school year. After work, she went home. Both Andrew and his husband's cars were in the driveway, and when she went inside, they weren't around. Totally normal at 9.30 at night, 
as Andrew opened the cafe bar he managed in the wee hours of the morning. Thinking they were both sleeping, Dorothy, gone in her jammies, grabbed a snack and sat down to watch TV. All of a sudden there was a loud knock on the door and I went to answer it and it was the police and the police said, you know, asked about Jake and said, is, you know, is Jake here? Does Jake live here? Is Jake here? And I was confused by that and I'm like, well, I think he's in sleeping, but I think he's in his bedroom sleeping. And they said, well, can we check on him because we're doing a well check? I'm like, what do you mean? Why are you doing a well check? And the police officer said, well, he called his mother a few minutes ago and was, you know, said he was in trouble and said there was a problem and, you know, he had just taken some pills and needed help and that kind of thing. I immediately became alarmed, of course, and was like, well, yeah, absolutely, you know. So um, they asked me to check on the door and the door was locked. And I'm like, well, that's also not that unusual. And the police said, and I don't know all the rules, but this is what they told us, that they couldn't break down the, their bedroom door because of privacy or whatever, but one of us could. Because by this time, um, my son was, my older son, Sean, was right there. He had gone to bed, but me pounding on the bedroom door of Andrew and Jake woke him up. So he came out and, what you know, we told him what was going on. And Sean agreed to um, break down the door because, of course, we're concerned, we're worried, we think Jake's in trouble, we think there's a problem. So my son Sean broke down their bedroom door that had been that was locked, and a police officer stepped right in front of Sean and just exclaimed, you know, just was like, you could tell there was something seriously wrong in that room, and pushed Sean and I down the hallway so we didn't actually see what was in the room, which is. I'm sure a blessing in disguise somewhere in there my brain even though I remember believing that Andrew and Jake were both in that room somewhere my brain stopped believing Andrew was in that room maybe because they were only asking about Jake I don't know or maybe because I just couldn't think that way and so I, I picked up my cell phone and was like 911 calling Andrew you know like texting him and calling him and was like oh my God, Andrew, Jake did something, there's a problem, oh my gosh, you know, they didn't want us anywhere near the condo, because at this point, they knew it was a crime scene, we did not understand that yet, but they knew, and they, of course, didn't want us anywhere near there. They had no idea what was going on. There were firefighters rushing in, and police everywhere. Andrew had told his husband only four days previous that he wanted a divorce. Dorothy and her son were calling other family members and a close friend, letting them know something was going on. And Sierra came right away, driving in a monsoon, in absolutely treacherous conditions. And another brother arrived as well. Sierra was calling Andrew, asking him, why is mom calling me frantically, telling me to come home? But Andrew wasn't answering his phone. Sierra turned on her street only to see emergency vehicles everywhere and she wondered what they were there for. And then it dawned on her. That is why she was called home. They were there for her emergency. Dorothy had encouraged Andrew's husband to move home to his mother during this trying time after Andrew had said he wanted a divorce. Dorothy was so compassionate and supportive. 
She only wanted what was best for both of them. Now, waiting outside during this storm, not understanding why her son Andrew wasn't answering his phone. Where was he? She needed to tell him about the emergency going on and that something was happening with his husband. Wanting the police to tell them something, and finally, they did. They were told that one of the men inside was going to hospital, and one of them was dead. This was the moment that Dorothy's reality was forever changed. Andrew was in the house as well. I'm leaning down, trying to see who's on the stretcher, of course, because I they just told me that one of them's dead and one of them's going to the hospital. And again, I don't know, this is the first time anything like this has ever happened to me, but maybe it's what your brain does to protect yourself. I could have sworn that it was Andrew on the stretcher. Dorothy saw what looked like her son. He had orange shorts on, and that is Andrew's favorite color. So naturally, her love and will allowed herself to think that. Not too long after that, Jake's mom and sister showed up because, of course, she, you know, had called the police saying, check on my son, but she lived very far away and then had driven to my house. So she came and she was hysterical and she was upset. And I thought Andrew had been taken to the hospital and she was begging me for any information. And I said, I don't know. They won't tell me anything. I don't know. They won't tell me anything. And then I felt so bad for her because she was so distraught that at one point I, I just looked at her and I said, it's Jake. Dorothy believed that her son-in-law was dead, never imagining for one second the shocking truth of what happened. They kept hearing snippets from the police, overhearing what they were saying. They were hearing words like search warrant, evidence custody, crime scene. They knew that Andrew would never have hurt himself, so they were sure that it was not a double suicide. They waited and waited. And finally, in the early morning hours, they were told Andrew was dead. His husband had murdered him and then tried to kill himself. Andrew had been dead for several hours with his husband lying there beside him. That Friday, I actually had called Andrew right after work at like five o'clock and it, to see if he wanted to hang out, but he didn't answer. Like, it's this weird thing. Like, I just feel like my brain kind of shut off at that point because I don't, I just, I know that I wasn't able to process the information that I was being told. I feel like I was a lot, like most of the time I was zoned out and kind of my, my brain felt like it was completely shut off. I don't know. It just, it really just felt like I wasn't really all there at that time. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool. So please help us to reach as many listeners as possible and tell a friend and let them know that we can be found on their favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our Facebook group, Morning the Murdered. I want to send a big thank you out there to all of our supporters. You can donate to the Morning the Murdered podcast through Patreon or PayPal at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E 
M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your generosity. And now, back to the show. They had to wait around because the police weren't sure what actually happened inside. They weren't considered suspects. They were being called witnesses. When the officer told them that Andrew was dead, the devastation set in right away. Sierra and her mother began crying and hugging, and they could hear one of the brothers vomiting. Family began arriving on the scene for support, and there were still two brothers to arrive from out of town, and they arrived the next day. After a miscommunication between the police and the media, the family had to hear the grim details of how their beloved son and brother was murdered on the news. Can you imagine how horrible for them? Upon entering the bedroom, the police immediately saw that the room was a grisly scene. There was blood all over the bed and floor and walls. Andrew's husband had attacked and murdered him with a sledgehammer. He then took pills and slit his wrists. He survived, and after a day in the hospital, he was arrested. He took a deal for second-degree murder before the police found out that it was actually first-degree. The family wishes they could have charged him with that. The aftermath was absolutely devastating on the whole family. Sierra got counseling, and that helped her a lot. Sierra's whole nervous system was reacting to the loss of her twin brother. Her whole body would shut down. Her counselor helped her to get through that and would have her go through every detail of her brother's murder with her to help her desensitize herself to the details so she could cope. Counseling has helped Sierra learn healthy ways to cope and she suggests it to anybody going through a crisis. That day will stay with her forever, but she needs to be able to live each day as Andrew would want her to. How has everything that happened affected perhaps, you know, the way you see peers? Like, you know, if someone says something, are you a little bit more on guard now, do you find, about what they're saying? So I pay very close attention to words that people say now. So, like, so often somebody says, oh, they're going to kill me. They're so mad they're going to kill me and stuff like that. It makes it too, like, too common and too too easy to ignore when people say things like that. Because I think Jake, so Jake, over the two years that we knew him, said a few things like that before. But everybody always assumed he was joking because that's what people do. They joke and they say, oh, I'm going to kill you or, oh, you know, whatever, stuff like that. And I think um, that needs to be, people need to be more aware of those words and the effect that they have on others and and how serious that kind of a word is. In regards to uh, relationships and stuff, I mean, I think, so I haven't been in a relationship since this happened or anything, but I definitely think that it's going to negatively affect my relationships just in the sense that I'm going to be maybe too paranoid or too cautious like just in a sense that I won't I'm, I'm going to have a hard time trusting um, but it definitely makes me worried because I think there's always going to be the thought in the back of my head of 
you know, what are his motives, you know, what are, what is he capable of and stuff like that. So, so yeah, this will definitely affect my future, the rest of my future in regards to relationships and, um, and other people. People can can think people are oversensitive when they say things like, you shouldn't say that. But people have to realize it's not being oversensitive. It's that the other person is being undersensitive. Exactly. Dorothy found that she couldn't function immediately after without distracting herself. But also that you must allow the feelings to process no matter how horrific they are to begin to get any freedom from the trauma. And remember that although the feelings feel like they will kill you, they won't, says Dorothy. And she emphasizes that. After feeling this way for a long time, she realized Andrew would have wanted her to have happiness in her life. He would want her to smile. She found that work helped her. As an instructional coach, helping people be better at their jobs as special education providers. Working would help block the trauma out for an hour or two. Also, she will hike, meditate, or write to Andrew, and this helps a lot. Domestic abuse is a very hard situation for everyone to deal with. When to intervene? How? Thinking back, people see that there were warning signs. And deep guilt can be intertwined with the trauma you are already living through, dealing with having a murdered loved one. Andrew's husband had abused previous boyfriends and tried to kill the boyfriend just before Andrew. Both came forward after. The mother of one said she had a restraining order. He was physically, emotionally abusive. He had a previous pattern that Andrew didn't know about. His husband's family never shared this information with them. His violence escalated with each relationship, and Andrew paid the ultimate price with his life. Hindsight allowed us to more see the progression of what happened between their in their relationship. Things like fairly early on after they were married, Jake asked Andrew to get off all social media and Andrew did it. He, he complied and Andrew was a typical 20 something and he used social media often. He had an Instagram and a Snapchat and a, you know, Facebook and all those probably ones I don't even know the name of type of media presence. And he immediately got off of all of them at Jake's request. And that's, you know, that's, that's kind of a warning sign. It's a red flag. Um, there was, there was also a situation where Andrew had, Jake had some anxiety issues and Andrew had bought him an exotic pet, but he had bought a couple of chinchillas, which are small mammals for Jake as kind of a comfort animal. And, um, Jake ended up being abusive and those, those two pets died tragically. We didn't understand at the time or we didn't know the extent of the way that he had treated them at the time that led to their death. But certainly abusing animals is a warning sign that there's something something wrong in the situation. There was also a um, mysterious broken wrist that Andrew had at one point, and he explained it away as an accident at the time that he got it. But when we look back at it, and then when we talk to other people who he had told different stories about how his wrist had broken to, 
the likelihood is that, that Jake did probably intentionally break it and that Andrew was doing what many victims of domestic violence do, and that is covering it up and not talking about it. I think what made it particularly hard to maybe recognize is Andrew had a very strong personality and was physically healthier and stronger and more fit than Jake. And so, and he had a more dynamic personality. So he didn't look like the weaker. If you, if you looked at the two of them, you wouldn't have thought he was the weaker one or he was the one that would have been the victim. He certainly didn't look like he would have been the attacker either if he wasn't, but um, he didn't portray or he didn't look like or seem like a victim. And I think that's another warning sign is don't fall into stereotypes. Don't think of the only person that's a victim of domestic violence is this weak, inept woman that can't take care of themselves because that's not true. Anybody can be a victim of domestic violence and we learned that the hard way. I know it's, it's very challenging for me as his mother to think back and say, you know what? In retrospect, if somebody had treated his twin sister the way he was being treated, even just the things that I knew about at the time, not even the things that I found out afterwards, those really would have been red flags for me. And I have a lot of guilt over, well, why would those be red flags if he had been his sister, but they weren't red flags because he was a male. And so I have to live with, and I've had to wrestle with that sense that I had a stereotype of who would be a victim of domestic violence. And I just didn't see him as potentially being that, and yet he was. And ultimately it led to his death. And so that's, that's very challenging and very difficult to process and come to terms with, you know, as his mother. Even though he was an adult, you always feel like you're the protector when you're the mom. And I, I didn't protect him the way I feel like I should have. Oh my goodness. I can hear the pain in your voice. That's so heartbreaking. And, you know, those are, that is such great advice you're giving to people because it is absolutely true, as you're saying, that just because one looks you know, stronger doesn't mean they can't be abused. And people don't think of it like that. They don't look at it in that way. I'm really glad that you were able to find the strength to share that with us, because I know that must have been very hard for you. The previous boyfriend had called 911 and the police discounted it, saying, you are bigger and stronger. No one will believe you. And the police talked the victim out of pressing charges. Had they not been so ignorant, Andrew may not have been murdered. Dorothy and Sierra want to take it upon themselves to help educate police that they should press charges no matter what the relationship, same sex or any. Andrew's husband had installed a tracker and he could see all his text messages. If he had a day off, he would sit at Andrew's work and watch him. He didn't want him to even have a relationship with his mother or twin sister. These are all warning signs. Let our listeners know about the devastation that can befall people through domestic violence relationships. Yeah, I think the the hardest thing is you don't think it's going to happen to you or your family, right? I mean, we're I'm college educated. I, I've seen and I know about domestic violence. And there's just this sense that it, it can't happen to you or it won't happen to you or anybody that you love. And then I think feeling like Andrew was particularly well aware of that 
part of life because he was studying as a, you know, he was studying to be a social worker and he had covered it in class. Sometimes you get lulled into a sense of that's not going to happen to us and we're beyond where that can reach you. And I think it's important to remember that that's never the case, that things like that can always affect you or impact you and that you have to be paying attention and be aware of the, the warning signs. I like I might have conversations with Andrew and we've wa- we watched a couple different movies that dealt with domestic violence and stuff and so I know that he understood the concept of domestic violence and he understood what it meant but I think it was much harder when he was in the middle of it to see the relationship for what it was and so I think just having that reminder that for the victim it is a lot harder to see it when you're in the middle of it and then also as somebody who saw it on the outside all I remember two days before Andrew was murdered we that was our last conversation and we were talking about he had already knew he already knew he was going to get divorced and we were just talking he was telling me a few of the the different things that Jake did that seemed really obsessive and crazy and and manipulative and I remember tell, like thinking, okay, that doesn't sound good. That's like not an, a healthy relationship or even a healthy person. And I told him that I didn't think it was a good idea for Jake to continue living out with him for another month or two while he got on his feet. And I told him through that. And I, I had the thought that it was not healthy, but that's all it, that's as far as it went. And so. I would encourage anybody that has the thought that something seems a little off or seems unhealthy to dig a little deeper because it it would be better to ask more questions, to make other arrangements, to do something differently in the moment than it is to then find find your brother or or find any relative, any friend, a victim of um, of a murder. So, um, so I think back on that a lot and, and if I had, if I had known that I should have maybe looked into that a little more or if I should have, should have followed my gut a little bit better, um, maybe, you know, we could have done things a little bit differently and, and realized that Andrew wasn't in a safe relationship and gotten him some help. So I just think that it's too easy to be, suspicious but not want to cross a boundary but when it comes to somebody's safety I feel like it's okay to cross that boundary a little bit to ensure the safety of somebody that you care about wow well said well said absolutely you're absolutely right because it is an uncomfortable and awkward and possibly it's going to cause a rift in your relationship but initially So, yeah, so you can overcome that rift, but you can't overcome, unfortunately, the tragedy that you guys went through. Something that both Sierra and Dorothy found that helped to some degree is to find meaningful ways to help others. When Andrew attended high school, he began a no place for hate club, as there is no reason for there to be hate among people of any orientation. There is now a no place for hate scholarship at his high school and his mom and sister get to help pick the recipient 
and hand out the scholarship. Isn't that so lovely? They are also spreading out kindness, making the world a better place, doing it with Andrew in their hearts, and it's his love spreading out from within them. I have no doubt these two strong women will accomplish all of the goals they set out in life. Can you both take a moment and tell me about the random acts of kindness you both do in Andrew's honor? One of his favorite restaurants in our neighborhood where we live, and he had a particularly favorite um, sandwich that he ordered there. It, it, it's a restaurant called The Main Ingredient, and they sell healthy um, options for food. And he loved their BLT sandwich with avocado. And so I went there. It was hard to even go there, um, first of all, but when I went there, with a friend, I just um, took one of the um, random acts of kindness cards that we have that, you know, say, you know, this is an honor of um, Andrew Aranda. And I um, left it with a $20 bill and with a, a little note, and I just handed it to the server. And it just said, you know, please pay for the next person who orders this particular sandwich um, with this money in honor of my son because it was his favorite, whatever whether that's a smile, a kind word. It doesn't have to even involve money. It can be, you know, taking, a, you know, a neighbor a meal or reaching out to somebody that needs just, a, a you know, an hour of your time or half an hour of your time or doing somebody's yard work. Or it can be anything that's positive and that just helps that person feel positive and hopefully they'll pass it on to the next person and the next person. I think that's how we change our world, quite honestly. We had mentioned the... Stella Care Farm and the Dr. Joanne Cacciatore who runs that was gracious enough to give us some garden space and we created at the entrance to the farm this big memorial garden in honor of Andrew and also my mom who I died just a couple years before Andrew and a niece of ours that died as a baby and it's just this really beautiful space with we planted some really beautiful flowers and trees and and it has a really cool rainbow spinning wind thing that's just really super cool. And it, it has homemade stone markers with their, their three names and dates of their, you know, birth and death, you know, kept up. And that's something that I can do with Andrew's siblings that is meaningful to them because my sons have struggled a little bit more to process and, and to, maybe get counseling as much as Sierra and I have. Um, and I think it, it gives them a different way to still work on some of those feelings and processing how they feel, but doing it in a different way, like do, through some physical manual labor. Sierra, what about you? Is there something that you'd like to discuss about a random act of kindness that you've done? Some of the ones I've done had to do with just uh, in a drive through buying or paying for the person behind me in line. I'm also, I just recently started learning how to quilt. And so I've started making quilts for other bereaved siblings and pa uh, parents that I've met along this journey. So it's taking a while because it's, it's, quilting takes uh, um, some time. But I have like a spreadsheet and I have, you know, all the people I'm going to be making quilts for and sending them as just reminders of their children and siblings and 
and a way of celebrating those people that are no longer with us. That is so sweet of you, and the families will really appreciate that. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. And you were really, really great on this podcast. And you'll help a lot of people, I'm sure. So thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It's really important. Oh, well, thank you very much. You guys take care and have a good evening. All right. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. When a loved one is murdered, there is something about sitting with other people to know how it feels to be going through the same thing especially losing a child to murder. Both Sierra and Dorothy have found comfort in so many support groups, which you can find in the show notes. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder... They lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one. And let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain. But surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout-out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia, with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.